You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, we discuss Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's tour of Europe. Tomorrow, I'll leave for Europe to meet with the three main leaders, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron and Theresa May. I will discuss with them developments in the region, but the emphasis will be on Iran. My guests, Alessio Patalano and Matthew Green, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a military reshuffle in North Korea and a little preview of the week's US primaries. All that. Plus, we discuss our favourite kits, that's uniforms, if you're listening stateside, that will be on display in Russia from next week at the Football World Cup. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Tom Edwards. A warm welcome indeed to Midori House. And my guests today are Alessio Patalano, lecturer in war studies at King's College London, and the journalist and author Matthew Green. A warm welcome to you both. Gentlemen, good to have you with us. Uh, let's start the show in North Korea, which announced the replacement of its top three military officials ahead of the summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un on the 12th of June. In Singapore, the new positions are supposedly held by Kim loyalists. Uh, are there any others? Um, Alessio, I'll come to you perhaps <laughs> first of all. Uh, why the changes? Everyone was quick to say, well, yes, this was maybe predictable ahead of this on-off, back-on-again meeting. Mm. Um did you see that coming? Um, I think one of the great things about talking um, about North Korea is that uh, whatever you say could be true or wrong um, because very, very little substantial information can be gathered. However, um, I would say three things. First of all, um, this change um, is part of a reshuffle that, that has been ongoing for quite some time. Um, you could arguably say that the timing of it um, it's quite peculiar uh, and couldn't because because of the summit coming up. So 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 whether one Sorry, coming or not is is kind of like a difficult to say. I think the timing reinforces, however, the fact that this is part of this bigger process in which Kim is progressively uh, uh, changing some of the top leadership with people that he trusts. Um, and the fact that he's doing it now is because probably he's committed to the uh, to 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 the summit talks. He's committed in the sense that you know he's going to go away uh, from home for a few days, and he he wants to come back and find a country that he can still run. <laughs> so I think he wants to increase the chances. Um, of, uh, of retaining control, um, but also um, setting the talks off to a good start uh, because the key was always, and we know this from the years of the Sunshine Policy, uh, to get the implementation together. The corruption and and the way sometimes the things happen in, in a very uh, sort of a hierarchical authoritarian regime is that everybody sort of grabs whatever they can. Uh, and so I think, I think what he wants to do, he really wants to stay in power, wants to slowly change North Korea. Again, we're talking here in relative terms um, and therefore these changes in these key positions will ensure the political stability so they can focus on delivering whatever this summit is supposed to do for him. So this is not a happy story for the international community directly. I think it is important that as, as a way to, to let us understand that the North Koreans are serious about getting something out that will benefit them and as a result of that indirectly for the rest of us in a way. 
Um, Matt, let me ask you, I guess a sort of tangential point to that. Does it really matter who's in some of the leading positions if we look across the sort of Pyongyang administration or the delegation in Singapore, really? Particularly if you look at it from Trump's point of view. It's really just about those two, <laughs> the two sort of ele- elephantine egos, isn't it? Well, uh, well, I think you make a very good point. I mean, this summit's been on and off and on again. I mean, it's now on as far as we understand, right? We think so. That's the idea, yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, <laughs> it is a rather terrifying prospect, isn't it? Kim and Kim versus Trump around the same table. Um, but I do. I think there must be a reason why Kim has made this reshuffle a few on the eve almost of this summit. Um, I mean, Alessio gave a very good explanation for the various reasons why that might be. Um, and it does sound like they are new faces at some level. And and. More importantly, they've got a certain experience of dealing with international delegations. I don't know about the the, the guys who've been removed, but one would hope that there would be people uh, who are part of this negotiation or at least these talks that are able to actually kind of interact, (laughs) even maybe crack a few jokes with their American counterparts. Um, Well, it's interesting if we reflect that those the three men replaced, I think, respectively, were 68, 81 and 77 years old. So their age is suggesting that perhaps they're from from the the old guard. Um, Is there a a problem, though, Alessio? I guess, again, it's hard to look at this without the context, of course, of this prospective meeting on the 12th. Mm. Um, In a sense, though, do do you not kind of want... I don't know, maybe not an octogenarian, but a septuagenarian. You want some grown-ups in this room, don't you? That's one of the things that I'd be most concerned about. <laughs> well, I think the, 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 the preparation and the implementation, you see, it depends very much on where you put the emphasis. From my perspective, I think the most important thing about this summit is what happens afterwards and who's going to be in place and whatever it is that it is agreed upon uh, to be implemented. So, uh, yes, we want some grown-ups, but then... Think about it. You're going to have Kim Jong-un on the one hand, who is like an absolute master of propaganda and sort of like uh, making quick decisions in order to steer the audience attention his way. I mean, remember what he did the first thing when he met with President Moon, right? They were supposed to walk the South Korean side of the DMZ. He thought about it. They were shaking hands and then he took him under his arm and they crossed back into North Korea. That was not staged. There were people at the South Korean end of the spectrum. They were, you know, they were quite worried about it. He, he stole the whole thing, right? So, so on the one hand, you've got a man that is a master and commander of that. On the other, you've got Trump, who is, again, a man of spectacle in many ways, um, a man of the showbiz. So, to be perfectly honest, I think the important thing about the summit is giving these two men an opportunity to shake hands and finally make something of the coin that's been made for the meeting so that everybody else will get one. Uh, we'll see the, the point of it. But afterwards, uh, the people working behind the scenes to make the summit happen and those who will, will be working afterwards to make it like you know be implemented are the most important ones. So I feel like more comfortable to have a slightly younger figure coming about and dealing with that uh, because because it means that those who are supposed to think about these things seriously do understand the importance of the before and after rather than what happened in the middle. Uh, Matt, to that point, it's interesting about Trump. One rather suspects that he and his inner circle are interested in the theatre of the moment and actually not a long-term view. I mean, look, people often talk about, you know, the Trump foreign policy. You know, is there even one at all? Is it an issue that one side comes uh, much more worried about the theatre and perhaps the other side is more inter- interested in the long-term view? Can, can those, if indeed those are the, the, the differing perspectives, can they marry up in this meeting on the 12th, do you think? Yeah, it's hard to see, isn't it? I mean, obviously it's very... 
difficult to be optimistic about anything that <laughs> Donald Trump is involved with on any level. But at the same time, well, no, at least they're meeting. He gets yeah. a lot of stick. If this does yeah. go ahead, now, of course, we're still hostage fortune on that to a degree. I mean, I'm not suggesting that that has to go down as a Trump foreign policy tri- triumph, but mm. he has to... D- yeah, you know, yeah, admittedly, we we know where we, where we all stand on this, but he deserves some credit for getting along the road that far, doesn't he? Yeah, well, it would obviously be a historic inverted commas occasion. Um, <laughs> you had to get your inverted commas. Whether, in. whether, whether it, well, <laughs> well, journalists are always very quick to um, to to add these labels to these mm. kind of incidents when it's always often very difficult to actually discern what it's going to lead to in concrete terms when the the, the raw interests of each side mm. are so diametrically opposed. But yeah, let's give them a chance. Uh, well, speaking of people who possibly don't deserve any licence and staying in North Korea, a news agency from the country announced that Syria's President Bashar al-Assad is planning a state visit. Uh, the first time Kim Jong-un would host a head of state I think since taking power in 2011, can that be correct? Well, aside from that brief border cross with mm. with Moon the other day, Alessio, um, if this happens, what should we expect to happen? It's you, again, it's another one you'd like to be a fly. Well, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't, uh, but uh, fascinating potentially. Um, yes, it is fascinating. I think it all uh, sort of uh, tells us something about Kim Jong Un's ambitions to. Um, to drive North Korea towards a different place it is today, uh, not that isolated pariah of a state, uh, but rather to a very moderate few first steps towards a slightly, you know, integration is a big word here, but at least a sort of starting a dialogue with the broader mm-hmm. international community. The thing that to me is, is the most interesting is that at the moment, the North Koreans obviously can only work at the naughty boys table right because they can go to russia they go to china they go to you know syria in this case and there aren't that many uh, sort of like state actors they can engage with however i do believe that what is becoming interesting or at least at one level i think there is perhaps hope to think that their ambition is precisely to get out of that corner to get out of that naughty table and to start gain because of the confidence. You see, the, the missile and nuclear programs at the end of the day, they're providing Kim Jong-un with a degree of confidence. And even though we can still think about the fact that they're not going to give up what they have, and, and there is no reason to think that they will give them up, right? Um, however, it seems to me that the fact that they push their foot down and try to get the missile and nuclear programs to a point where they become credible, at least from an external point of view, is precisely to give them that sense of confidence to say, like, right, now, we are in a slightly more sort of confident place. Let's start negotiating with the Americans. Because the first thing, if you want to become sort of like engaging with the international society, you need to have some sort of like a closure with the Korean War. So assuming that, for example, this summit goes ahead and they manage to have a peace treaty, you know, that opens up all sorts of possibilities. Of course, the North Koreans are not going to swiftly and, and sort of uh, 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 suddenly be regarded as, as, a, as a contributor to the international society. Not at all. But I think... You need, to, you know, the thousand sort of step journey starts with with the first step in that sense, and I think I think I think we should be making a mistake uh, by not seeing the fact that Kim Jong Un might actually have a vision that is different from that of his father and grandfather because today he has a different sense of confidence. Well, indeed, he will have enjoyed a success that neither of them uh, could have envisaged Absolutely. before. Should this meeting go ahead, J- just Matthew, on the on the the Syria point, though, um, we had a UN report earlier this year which suggested that North Korea had shipped materials that could be uh, used in the manufacture of chemical weapons uh, to Syria. 
again, it, it's we seem to need to return the backdrop of what's happening within Syria's borders. I mean, should we be concerned about that? Is that the sort of thing that, I don't know, could be addressed in the meeting even with the United States next week, perhaps? Well, it seems to me, I mean, Alessio made the point that the, this, the naughty boy's table, putting it very diplomatically in a way, but <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, the, all, the sorts of stuff that goes on between these countries i think that report about the chemical precursors mm. is, is scratching the surface i'm mm. sure there's mm. all kinds of financial trade and all kinds of criminal enterprises that countries like syria north korea and iran indeed are all kind of connected together they're all they're all they're all doing under the table so it'll i would be intrigued to hear more from that line of mm. reporting i think it's fascinating and i think it it helps often to explain a lot of what's going on higher, higher up on the surface and i guess part of the problem that you and reporters you say scratch the surface is that this stuff is kind of happening off the books almost mm, by yeah. necessity so but, it's quite yes, difficult exactly. to ever <laughs> to ever get any greater depth um let's talk about another well i don't know part-time one-time occupant of that same naughty table uh, israel's prime minister benjamin netanyahu he's embarking on something of a european tour meeting the leaders of Germany, France and the UK. Uh, the main topic under consideration is his desire to rein in those countries' enthusiasm for the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Iran clearly the main topic of discussion, at least as far as Netanyahu is concerned. I think he said there'll be two subjects, Iran and Iran. Um, Matt Green, if will, will Netanyahu get that agenda passed Macron, past Merkel, past Theresa May for that matter. Well, it sounds like the Europeans are pretty united in wanting to keep the Iran deal, from what I can <laughs> yes. say. I mean, why I, they, they came out very strongly as soon as Trump mm. essentially tore it up and said, no, we, we still consider it to be valid and we're working mm. to salvage it as best that we can. So I would have thought that he's Netanyahu's going to struggle to with so much traction. Why do you that. think he would be so explicit then in saying that's what it's about? You know, well, everybody he's got to knows tell what his I'd... domestic constituency, hasn't he? Mm. Speak to them of their concerns. And also given the backdrop of what happened in Gaza on the border with Gaza just a few weeks ago, that mm. doesn't that that, that 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 is also going to be um, very much looming over these discussions. So I don't I don't see that he's going to get very much out of this trip. He certainly won't get it all his own way. And so to that point specifically mm. uh, about Israel's well military action is essentially against protesters. Um, one imagines that's inevitable. That but all those three M's Merkel, Macron, May will raise that. How does he deal with their reservations, particularly given this backdrop about the the Iran deal? <laughs> I think both issues come down to whether it's got that sort of, you know, that bag full of new evidence that will astonish everybody. Mm. Um, from what we've seen and the coverage of the media, that would appear to be not so much to astound anybody, really. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, he seems to be quite confident about the fact that he can come up to Europe. Uh, you know, and, and it's going to be, a, you know, if I were him, I would see this like a very uphill battle because it, he's coming to three places that have been pretty consistent, as Matt was saying, on both the Iran side and also Israel sort of um, actions of, on the Gaza Strip uh, recently. So... How do you face both of them? My guess is uh, is probably it'll have to come with something as in like, look, we have hard evidence suggesting that our military actions, if not perfect, were at least justified. And Iran is um, because the, they, 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 we have to sort of um, um, take a couple of steps back. And, and the key beef of contention is that the um, the the uh, Netanyahu has been saying that um, um, 
Iran has been sort of developing places uh, that have not given ac- been access to the international community, and that's where the program is 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 going on. Um, and I think there is room to negotiate or at least to discuss with the Europeans how to tackle that problem, provided there is a degree of evidence. So what I think is going to happen is not it's not going to come clean. It's not going to come here and, and and walk away from Europe say like, oh, the Europeans are on my side. But I think at least his expectation is to provide a sufficient amount of evidence to at least tone down the opposition to what Israel has done in response to the events in Gaza and also to kind of create an understanding rather than the current opposition to mm. uh, their attitude as far as the Iran deal is concerned. But I guess, Matt, if we if we reflect back on that rather extraordinary sort of PowerPoint presentation that Netanyahu <laughs> did a few weeks ago where he sort of allegedly presented new information and much of it was it hadn't moved on since going way back to sort of yeah. the, the mid-2000s, really. Yeah. Um, there's no real reason to believe, as Alessio has alluded to there, that he'll present anything different. I, I kind of come back to the fundamental question of what, what is he... Why is he? Why is he gone on this trip? You know, he knows that he has the the key ally uh, in, in Washington. The US has been very clear about where it stands. What, why is he making this trip at all? Um, um, my mind has just gone on to an amazing documentary. I'm sorry, I actually don't know why he's going, Tom. But <laughs> there, there's an amazing documentary on the Stuxnet virus. You ever see this? Which the CIA developed to basically infiltrate the Iran nuclear program and mm. get its centrifuges spinning out of control. And then, of course, this virus escaped into the into the sort of onto the Internet and caused all kinds of havoc. If you want to know what's going on with the CIA, Iran and Israel, watch that documentary. Don't but, listen to me because I, I don't actually. There know. you go. No, we don't want to. We don't want to drive our listeners away. But once this program is finished in about fifteen exactly. minutes' time, uh, head there. Good tip, Matt. Uh, this is Midori House with me, Tom Edwards, Alessio Patalano, and Matt Green. Coming up next, what to expect from the U.S. primaries this week, and what's the best football kit at this year's World Cup? Stay tuned. <laughs> Monocle has bureau around the world, in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Toronto, and New York City. In Hong Kong, our bureau chief is James Chambers. There's no such thing as an ordinary day in Hong Kong. On any one day, I may be interviewing a city mayor or having coffee with a hotelier or chatting with an interior designer and then trying out the latest bar or restaurant. And mixed in with all of this, there'll be some wacky or outrageous news coming out of China which deserves to be covered on the radio. So it's this variety that I really love about the job. Hear from Monocle's editors and correspondents on the stories that matter and the places that matter every day on Monocle 24. You're listening to Midori House on Monocle 24. Still with me, Tom Edwards, are both Alessio Patalano and Matthew Green. Now, tomorrow, eight American states, including the biggest, California, will be holding primary elections for governor, Senate and House seats later this year. The Democrats are keen, understandably, to regain control of the House of Representatives. Besides California, there are primaries in Alabama, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico and South Dakota, with other states also voting soon. Um, what to expect from the primaries? Uh, Alessia, it's interesting. It, it's always a bit of a popular sort of motif that, you know, the incumbent in the White House is beaten up or his party's beaten up at the midterms. And everyone's been saying pretty much since Trump was returned, oh, well, you know, just wait for the, the midterms. I guess in these primaries we'll start to see that. But interestingly, the Democrats still seem to have almost as many problems as they had when Trump won. You know, we haven't seen the sort of white knight candidates coming forwards. Do, do you think we'll get much clarity if we if we look at the big picture first of all? 
Well, that's a very good question. I think uh, California stands out as the uh, a slightly different context. First of all, because it's got its own, you know, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. It's got its own internal dynamics. And some of the key steps that, in terms of policy, Trump has taken, most notably on, on climate control, um, uh, California stands at the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, so, so in a way, uh, you know, if we look at what is likely to happen in California, we'll see probably the sort of Trump loins or whatever happens in, in, in California will be symptomatic in terms of uh, the extent to which those who don't like Trump really don't like him and how many of them are there, out, you know, out there. So I think I think that's going to be an interesting uh, um, sort of test to see where the government is going in terms of popularity. Having said so... Um, I think also what is interesting in the Californian case is that you're absolutely right. Democrats are still in disarray in a way, as in uh, their policy solutions as being sort of different from Trump, but not that different from the ones on the sort of far uh, far left. And so at the moment, you don't seem to have a clear picture as to the Democrats really regaining territory or whether the fact that in California, lots of people maybe don't like Trump, they'll see sort of their Democrats coming back. So in a way, it could still be a a result that favours Republicans indirectly. So I think that's what is going to be an interesting thing to look at as we we, we, we see things unfolding tomorrow. Um, uh, Matt, what about Trump as liability? Because it sort of pick up on exactly that point that Essie was talking about. He does seem clearly in certain districts, his, his the cult of personality around him will cause a problem even on this sort of local level. But presumably, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, this base of Trump and this sort of thing and this fact that he stands as the, 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 the alternative in some ways that strength will endure presumably mm. even in certain uh, districts and wards during the during these primaries yeah and, uh at the end of the day, he did win the election. I mean, albeit with a minority of votes, he did, or, or he didn't win the overall vote, but he did win power. Um, I don't know. It's hard to watch, isn't it? You know, I sit was looking at Twitter earlier, and there was a, a, a story that someone had written or an opinion piece about how Trump is basically displaying all the characteristics of a dictator total contempt for the rule of law essentially identifying with the state particularly in his response to this investigation over russia i mean i think he tweeted earlier words to the effect of every lawyer knows i can be pardoned although i don't need to be pardoned because i didn't do anything wrong and you know it's almost you know moi. <laughs> and and that's a problem for the president of the united states so I don't know. I mean, I've not been back to the US for quite a while now, but it's it's just so distressing to watch, even for those of us sitting in foreign countries. God knows what it must be like being an American citizen at the moment. Well, and potentially being a, an American Democrat, Alessio. And, and just to sort of return to this point, which we sort of touched on briefly, um, I, I don't know, you, you sort of felt if we look ahead to 2020 that we would see by this midtermish point candidates at least becoming more prominent or maybe being a galvanizing mm. voice maybe a more youthful voice or on the flip side following the sort of success of you know bernie sanders out on the stump you know a, a, a veteran who people felt they could trust but we're not really seeing that uh, why why is it taking the the democrat movement so long to seem to sort of get their momentum back so I think that's an excellent question, and it's probably going to be like the question that political scientists in America uh, will engage with for the next half a decade and try to make new theories about it. Now, my very simplistic view at the moment, uh, or, or no, not simplistic, but the, the narrow uh, perspective from where I stand when I look at uh, foreign and security policy insofar as the Asia-Pacific is concerned, uh, there's one thing to say. Matt is absolutely right. So you look at the surface of it, this guy is, is out of his mind. You know, you, you look at the tweeting policy, I mean... 
can you do foreign policy through 240 characters? Hey, uh, who knows the answer? However, the team behind it and the people in the key positions, whether it is state, whether it is um, uh, DOD, senior position, I mean, those that have been filled in, um, they are extremely good. Uh, most of them like extremely professional. And when you look at the actual implementation of policy, as opposed to the superficial madness of his tweeting activities, um, it's much more composed, uh, it's much more sort of coherent, um, especially sort of insofar as the Indo-Pacific is concerned. Uh, the people that, that he put in place, they have a conservative agenda, but they're quite clear, being consistent, and they've been playing their cards well. To an extent that there is a much greater sense, despite, again, as I say, the disorientation of his character, there is a greater sense when I travel to Asia, uh, you know, across the sort of um, allied capitals, a greater sense of reassurance from this administration there, I say, than from the second parts of the Obama administration. And I think that is creating that sense of disorientation within the Democrats, mm. whereby in terms of policy, what is happening is hard to say, or oh, we want to stand in a different sort of context. Exception, perhaps, with the um, climate change or the tariffs or some specific aspects of policy where they can draw a distinction, but that in itself does not create a vision or something that can lead to a, a new person to emerge. And if you buy into the fact that from the superficial level, the reason why, so Americans tell me, he was elected in the first place is because his way, his behavior is so anti establishment well there you go you got a powerful combination you cannot bit him on being the anti-establishment guy because there isn't anybody else in the sort of a democrat side that could do the same thing he does um, and in terms of policy it's not a different but it's very consistent and the implementation has been quite professional so in terms of substance you can't challenge him on that ground as well uh, even given that backdrop, though, I suppose it's potentially the case, uh, Matt, that the Democrats could, for example, regain control of the House, for example. I mean, would could that spell Trump if he has a... I mean, it would still be a political setback of sorts. We know it won't probably stick on him with his Teflon coated coating, etc. Um, but that would be a setback. Do you think he could steward his administration pretty serenely through that kind of problem? Well, it... It seems to me that the Republican Party, which has been so supine in the face of his hmm. behaviour, has been content to do that because they've been able to get through their tax plan and mm. like Alessio says start to implement this conservative agenda so if they no longer have control of the house then that's going to be more difficult mm. so presumably the voices I mean <laughs> hopefully there are still people in the Republican Party who who can see the dangers associated with Trump um, presumably that calculus will start to change. I don't know enough about the granularity of that, but that will be the question I'd be asking. Uh, let's have a quick change of pace before the show is out. The World Cup is almost upon us. The first match scheduled to happen on the 14th of June, but one thing's for sure. The most popular and talked about kit or uniform of this year's iteration is the dazzling version sported by Nigeria. Nike, its manufacturer, say there have been 3 million orders of the shirt already. It's sold out, as I understand it, even though it's priced at something like £65, which is a good $100. <laughs> Alessio's face, he's shocked. Um, an impressive shirt indeed. Um, Alessio, it's always good fun to look at these sorts of details around mm. the big sporting event. I like the branding stories and all the rest of it. Um, that's an extraordinary uh, number. Is there a danger that football fans around the world get fixated and worry too much about the shirts on their idols' backs rather than the game that's being played on the grass? 
Well, I think there's always been sort of this, the two have always gone hand in hand. I'll give you a small story. As a, as a, as a, as a native in Naples, um, as you probably know, Naples for a long time fell off the sort of uh, Premier League, the Serie A in Italy went in, and, and, and even during the sort of dark days, the one thing that it managed to do was the only uh, sort of uh, Class B team that had this uh, major league sponsors. And that's because Neapolitan Fan Club kept buying the kit. So, and, and that happened even in the darkest days, right? Um, and, and, and so, I suppose that it's a part of the modern way the sports goes. It's it, it, fashion, it, and it sort of brings back this question about football and role modelling, and mm. and sort of bringing sort of branding, fashion, dear dear, you sell about the team. Why Madrid's t-shirts or Barcelona t-shirts? You can see them everywhere, regardless of the nationality of the individuals. Because I think it goes with what the team stands for and what you buy into when you support the team. Um, Matt, I don't know if you've seen the Nigeria kit. What does what would that tell you about the? It's quite dynamic, I guess. It's a little flashy. Well, does that? Thing, tell us I used to live in Lagos, and the, <laughs> the the Nigerians always used to lament the fact that the team was composed of some brilliantly talented individuals, but it often struggled to mesh together as a as a football f- playing force. And this, of course, became a metaphor for that entire country, which mm. is unfortunately very true. There's incredibly talented Nigerians, but getting them together to run the country in a way that is actually going to benefit the vast majority of the 160-odd million people living there has so far proved to be an elusive goal. Uh, now, I would end normally just by quickly getting a, a shout-out as to who's going to win the World Cup. Alessio, I can hardly believe that I have to ask you this. With no, no Italy there, it's not right, is it? But what about on the kit? Have you got a favourite? What's the best Italian vintage in terms of the Oh, 2006 the World Cup, the Puma design one. Absolutely classic, eternal, you know, elegant, stylish. I didn't even know that the World Cup was on this year I thought it wasn't there you go he's in, he's, he's in <laughs> blissful ignorance and I think that one ended pretty well for Italy didn't it yeah yep, not, yep, not, not too shabby Matt you got a favourite I'm it, obviously rooting for, for Nigeria Super Eagles go go, go yeah, Super Eagles, Super Eagles. In, in all of history my favourite is the small shorted uh, Brazil 82 the sort of Socrates Ooh, do you remember nice. that one yeah that's I remember that one yes. very emotive I'm we want that one too by the way Matt Green looks absolutely disgusted. Uh, That is all we have time for uh, on today's edition of Midori House. Thanks to Alessio, thanks to Matthew, and thank you to you for listening. Thanks too to our producer, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and our researcher, Limichi Okamoto, and our studio manager, Cassie Galpin. Uh, More new music coming up for you next. We'll have the Monocle Culture Show at 1900 Hours and more on the Monocle Daily at 2200. My name's Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.